0: I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And Gary Fish founded Deschutes Brewery in downtown Bend, Oregon in 1988. It began as a small pub that focused on handcrafted foods, house-brewed beers, and the purpose of bringing people together. Under Gary's leadership, Deschutes Brewery has grown to become the 10th largest craft brewery in the United States. Gary, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Thanks, Michael. Appreciate you inviting me.
0: Well, I appreciate you accepting the invitation, so I suppose it's appreciation all around. <laughs> As we just set off, Mike, I've been a fan of your brewery for almost two decades now, which feels a little weird to say. Not weird to say that I've been a fan, weird to acknowledge how old I am. I specifically remember drinking meer Pond Ale during my college days at Davis. It was a regular staple in my 20s and 30s here in LA, and Bend also holds a very special place in my heart. I first visited Bend not too long ago in 2019 on a three-week-long road trip with my dog, Charlie. So again, it's an absolute pleasure speaking with you today.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure uh, to be here. And just because we're visiting these kinds of things, this may be a full circle moment for me as well, having grown up and really starting my career in Northern California trying to get some experience while helping a friend of mine open the Rubicon Brewing Company in Sacramento. Of course, I'm familiar with UC Davis and my father was involved in the California wine industry in the late 60s and early 70s. And in fact, provided a lot of the motivation to explore the coming renaissance in beer at that time.
0: And we are going to dig into that history in just one moment. But you want to talk full circle. You want to talk Northern California. Okay. You were born in 1956. And you, like me, were born in Berkeley, California. And you, like me, grew up in the East Bay. In my case, it was Pleasanton. In your case, it was both Walnut Creek and Lafayette. And while it would probably make for more appropriate myth-making, if your first childhood job was somehow beer-related... It was actually washing dishes in a winery themed restaurant in Orinda, California at age 16. So, walk us through what that experience was like, Gary, and what was the prevailing culture around wine in 1970s America?
1: It's fascinating. You know, the culture of wine at that time was typically a liquid that came in a gallon jug, usually with the words Chablis and Burgundy on the label. And then there were a handful of foreign entrance into the marketplace that not many people knew or could understand or even pronounce, in fact, at that time. And because of some intrepid entrepreneurs who were making high-quality varietal wines in Northern California, entered a contest in Paris and took home the grand prize. And that kind of gave license to consumers to want to know more about these wines. And not only could they read the label, but it had the wine variety. There was a winemaker down the street that you could actually speak with and talk about what it is about this wine that makes it special. My first job at 16 years old in a restaurant in Orenda, Orenda, you'll know, is a very upscale community. And this was a winery-themed restaurant that even for them, if you asked for a carafe of the house wine in 1974, you would likely get something that was poured out of a gallon jug that had the word gallo on the label. And the whole revolution hadn't really begun, but it was beginning and in earnest. It seems to me
0: like wine in the 60s and 70s was looked at as either a total elitist operation where you don't know how to pronounce the names on the wine bottles and Europeans are turning their noses up at Californians, either that, or like you're saying, they're drinking it out of gallon jugs. But it seems like the journey for brewers like yourself in the 80s and 90s and beyond was trying to introduce beer drinkers to more complex types of beer In a period when, I suppose, the gallow of beer, so to speak, without naming names, was kind of the most popular thing that all Americans drank. My dad told me when he was in his 20s in the 1970s, he's six years older than you, there were like three beers on tap at every single bar you went to, and it was basically Budweiser, Coors, and maybe Michelob or something.
1: My background's the restaurant business. That's kind of how we got into this business, but in my early career, You're right. I mean, there was one, two, maybe three tap handles. And I remember working in a bar that had four. It was Bud, Michelob, Coors Light, Miller Light. And I can't tell you how many times I took on the challenge of offering up a blind tasting (laughs) to a customer who knew that he could tell the difference. And at that time... There was no bigger difference than the difference between the flavor of Coors Light and the flavor of Michelob. Yeah. And I was 100% winning every time because they couldn't even tell the difference. The point is, is that there was a single flavor theme for the beers that were being produced. And variety did not exist except for on the very rare occasional, you may find a bottle of Guinness Export.
0: Right. All the beers that were outside of that main four that you talked about were foreign.
1: Yeah, exactly. And nobody really understood them. I mean, it's the same script that related to wine when the American consumer kind of discovered high quality varietal wines made in America.
0: So from 16 until 31, when you founded Deschutes, you were working in the restaurant industry, either in California or Utah.
1: I made my 50th anniversary working in restaurants this year. It's one of those things that gets in your blood. How did you
0: make that transition from working strictly
1: in restaurants
0: to working in the brewery?
1: The reality is my father had a business back in the days of tax shelters where they put together partnerships that owned and operated agricultural properties in California, most of which were or became vineyards, So, he was used to a business model where you had to purchase the land, plant the vineyard, very high cost per acre to plant with the trellises and everything else. And then you wait five plus years before you get any real meaningful production. And then you... Make the wine, you allow it to ferment and age, and then you put it in a bottle and send it to market through a distributor that usually wanted 90 to 120 days of credit terms. And it was a very expensive process. And he looked at the idea of a brew pub where you made and sold beer all within the same four walls. And could get paid largely in cash about 30 days after laying in your raw materials. And assuming that the consumer has not yet discovered high quality, call it varietal beer made in America by a guy who's right there next to you, who you can talk to, explore all the new styles that were coming of age and to me, it rode on the coattails of exactly what had happened in the wine industry. I imagine that is both an opportunity, like your father
0: rightly pointed out, being able to enter this space with a whole new brand of beer, so to speak, but also a challenge that you have to basically educate the consumer from the ground up into an entirely new field of something that they thought they knew a lot about. I'm sure you had customers being like, I've drank beer for decades. I know what beer is. What the hell is this?
1: Exactly. I mean, I we had people walk up to the window that separated the bar and the brewery, all the equipment, all the stainless steel tanks, everything else, and say, that's BS. You're not making beer here. This is all staged. <laughs> and mean it. Yeah. That's like, well, <laughs> I can't convince you any more than say, you know, that's where it comes from. But the adventure really was what happened after that, because the exploration and innovation of beer styles has been on a tear for the last several decades, and the consumer has been right there with us always, wanting something new, wanting something creative something interesting and they want to know about it they don't want to just drink it and call it good they want to understand what it is that they're drinking and why they should enjoy it and why in fact they do yeah
0: i mean one of the things that i want to really hammer home to those listening right now who are my age or younger is how absolutely different the landscape for beer was in the 1980s and even the 1990s for most people compared to today. Because like you said, I mean, when I was just visiting Bend last month and you couldn't throw a stone without hitting a brewery, (laughs) I've heard it has more breweries per capita than any town in America. That might very well be true based on my experience. But anywhere you go, not only are there a dozen different beers of all varieties on tap, but basically a biography of every single beer who it was made by, where the where the, all the ingredients for the beer was from. It was like an encyclopedia attached to every single beer type, but that wasn't what it was like in the 1980s. You had a really pivotal opportunity right before you opened shoots, and that a friend of yours was opening a brew pub in Sacramento. And I don't know if you meant this literally or not, but you basically said you hired yourself out for free to work for him just so you can have the opportunity to learn from what he was doing right, where he messed up, so you could use that as a way to learn before you started the shoots.
1: Yeah. When Ed Brown was developing the Rubicon Brewing Company in Sacramento, Ed's father and my father had been business partners. So I had known Ed, we'd, for all intents and purposes, grown up together. And Ed didn't know much more about the restaurant business than he did the beer business. And my father and I were looking at the opportunity to get into this business. And I had sold the partnership I had in a restaurant in Salt Lake City. And we had committed to finding a place to develop a business like this. I offered myself to Ed and I didn't want any money for it because I wanted to learn about the business and basically see what mistakes he made. So I was moving. From Salt Lake City, where my wife was, to the Bay Area, where my parents were, to Sacramento, where we were working on the development of the Rubicon Brewing Company, to basically all over Northern California looking for a place to locate this business. It was an interesting challenge. I was looking from you know the San Francisco Peninsula to Lake Tahoe and from basically Santa Barbara to the Oregon border. Wow. Oh, by the way, without really any luck at all <laughs> and trying to figure out how to make sense of this. And it was only after my parents had come through Bend after a college reunion in Corvallis and stayed with some friends and really couldn't stop talking about what a great place it was and how much potential it had. I mean, Bend was very depressed back then as the timber industry was on its last legs. And we looked around and basically for all the wrong answers that we were getting everywhere else we looked, we were getting right answers. I mean, the city fathers, the city administrators, the liquor control agencies, everybody had the same response. Sounds great. I'll be your first customer. That was very different than what we discovered looking around Northern California.
0: Well, you know, as a native of California myself, it's interesting to hear how little things have changed when it comes to the business environment here in the state. But it sounds like Bend was almost a study in extremes in terms of what was happening at the time between the depressed state of the economy as it was reeling from the depression in the early 1980s. And then also the warm reception you were getting from the city's leaders. Walk us through that first experience in September of 1987 that you had when you visited Bend. And again, a month later with your wife in October for your anniversary, what was the town of Bend like at the time on the ground?
1: Well, we had come up, my father and I had come to Bend to really just do an exploratory visit. And we talked to everybody we could think of to talk to. Like I said, the city planners the police the developers everyone that we could think of we didn't care we wanted to talk to people and get some perspective to understand whether or not this could make sense and because bend was coming out of this terrible depression really the pricing was incredible and i think sometimes it's good not to know the things you don't know and i think that's really where we were at and We checked every box we could think of, and we made the decision. We found a building that we could afford to purchase rather than just lease in California. And we were off and running, not knowing what we didn't know. (laughs) And, you know, Bend was depressed. We didn't think that was going to be a horrible thing because we thought Bend had a, a real future. You know, it was converting its economy from timber to recreation and tourism. We thought that fit very well with us. We were able to locate a building in the middle of downtown. Now, admittedly, it was pretty depressed back then. Probably a third of the storefronts were boarded up. I mean, you can't even imagine that looking at the town today. But we made the decision, thank goodness, to take the building in the downtown core because we thought that we wanted Ben to take a form of ownership in this business And be the community gathering place. But it was still depressed. And, you know, I've joked many times, but it's not much of a joke that the only reason people came out to see us in those days was to watch us fail. It's kind of like watching a car wreck in slow motion. But we persevered, we held up, we kept going. And eventually, The numbers started to improve. I was no longer sitting with my bookkeeper every morning deciding which bills to pay and which ones we could put off until some later time. And we were off and running. We didn't really know. We had an opportunity to sell a few kegs to a distributor in Portland because some tavern owners had been through Bend on holiday and had liked the beer and wanted to pour it in their taverns. We didn't have the ability to understand the difference or what that meant for us but we had the beer. We needed the money. And so, we put our first pallet of kegs on the back of a load of recycled cardboard heading for Portland. And we were in the manufacturing business and we had no idea. And eventually, it just grew. We never sold any beer. People just came and bought it. And the numbers got bigger and we added onto the building and we had this operation we rented a building across the street behind us and we put a cooler in there and we were loading semi trucks in the middle of downtown city streets and having no idea that wasn't really really legal. And when we started getting letters from the city about that practice, we realized that either we had to get serious and grow or we were going to have trouble shrinking back to being just a restaurant operation. So we grew, again, not knowing what we didn't know. I mean, I tried, tried to research everything I could, but really, there weren't a lot of educated brewers. We sent a couple of brewers to brewing school in Chicago. That helped, but even that course didn't give them the knowledge that real experience would have. And we kept going, making mistakes and fixing them. But that that was our MO at the time.
0: There is so much power in ignorance when you're first starting something out. That was a, a lesson that was hammered into me in film school years ago about how oftentimes the folks who are the most brash and successful and experiment boldly are the ones who don't know that they quote unquote shouldn't do what they're doing because they don't know they shouldn't do it. It's just interesting to track Deschutes Brewery's history all the way through what you were saying, where you you were literally getting letters from the city of Bend that you were causing traffic with your semi-trucks because of your popularity, where only years prior, you literally couldn't get loans from banks because they couldn't wrap their minds around the idea of a brew pub because they wouldn't give loans to restaurants, but they didn't understand that it was a restaurant and a brewery. And it's just interesting tracking how quickly you went from not being able to get a loan from a bank to getting letters from the city because of how successful you were.
1: Absolutely, that meeting with the bank that you referred to is still is one that just makes me chuckle. We went in to to sit with them. And of course, I couldn't have gotten a meeting with a banker myself without my father sitting next to me, you know, and and Ben, like I said, was very depressed. So he was adamant they don't loan money to restaurants. It's like, okay, but this isn't a normal restaurant. We're actually manufacturing beer and selling. We don't know anything about beer or breweries or anything else. But it's a model that you're familiar with because it's in a restaurant. Yeah, but we don't loan money to restaurants. And we went back and forth for probably a half an hour before we finally said, okay, thanks for your time. We'll find something else to do. And eventually, we actually did find a bank that would work with us. And that was fortuitous. And we ended up with a very long, healthy relationship with them as a result. I want to take a step back
0: here and talk a little bit about the history of Bend because Deschutes Brewing is where all the brewing operations really take place now. It's now located across the river from a shopping plaza in Bend, which is called the Old Mill District. It's named as such because it used to be home to a lumber mill, a literal lumber mill. Starting in 1916, there were these two huge lumber employers who were responsible for most of the economy and population of Bend, Oregon for over 60 years. At their peak, I think these two pine mills Uh, which were the biggest in the world at the time, combined were employing 4,000 people, which doesn't sound like much in a city like Bend today, which has over 100,000 people. But at the time in the 1930s and 40s, it was only 9,000 people. That's including children. So by 1988, when you founded Deschutes Brewery and Public House, which was initially just a a small brew pub, like you said, in downtown Bend, the population had increased to about 20,000 people and the timber industry had all but disappeared you see this replicated in small towns that go through these economic depressions where there's both a desperate need for an economic revitalization and yet also skepticism of restaurants or businesses or stores like yours, which are looking to come in and boost the economy. Do you have a way to explain that dynamic? They could use incoming business and yet, as you were saying at that time, obviously, their tone has changed over the last several decades. But at the time, they were, if I get this right, Gary, rooting for you to fail.
1: Well, that's, that's my interpretation of it because it has a little bit more of a theatrical lean. But, you know, people would come in, and, and we had this happen all the time, you know, that Bend was a very blue-collar place. But they'd come in and sit at the bar and ask for hams in a can. It's like, we don't have that. Okay, I'll have a course. Well, we don't have that. Budweiser, we don't have that. What do you have? We have the beer that's made over there. Okay, well, give me the lightest beer you've got. And we would, but it was really an interesting adventure back then because it was so blue collar. And even though people came through town, particularly the tourists, either for the skiing at Mount Bachelor or in the summertime for any of the other outdoor pursuits. And all we wanted to get them to do was come in and try the beer and maybe have a burger or something so that we could continue this enterprise. But it was an education process. And I think anybody in any industry that's had as part of their charter educating the consumer will tell you it's a very difficult, slow, arduous process to educate a consumer about something that they just don't relate to. But eventually, they came around, and all we had to do was persevere. We did. I had a mantra, it doesn't have to be fast, it just has to be forward. And fortunately, that ability to to start selling kegs really gave us the cash flow to keep us in business until the city of Bend grew to the point that they could support us.
0: The hiring process (laughs) for Deschutes Brewery, I mean, honestly, reads like something out of a classic three-act comedy. You put out the notice that you were looking to hire folks. You were like, all right, I opened up 9 a.m. waiting for applications. None came. No one showed up. Another hour. No one showed up. Pretty much no one showed up the first day. And out of the 15 applicants that you got over the course of the whole application process, you were, in your words, kind of forced to (laughs) to hire 12 of them. But you ended up really having a great partnership with John Harris, who's now the founder and runs Ecliptic Brewing. Walk us through those first months where you were kind of feeling your way and making what became your first three flagship beers, which were your Cascade Golden Ale. There was the Bachelor Bitter. And the third was the Black Butte Porter, which is iconic to this day. Walk us through how you and John and the rest of your employees started forming those three flagship beers.
1: Well, we had hired a consultant that we found as part of our research. A gentleman who lived in British Columbia was a trained brewer in England and Germany. And he designed the first brew pub in North America, in Horseshoe Bay, British Columbia. Frank Appleton was his name. And he was designing the brewing equipment. And part of his contract was that he would formulate the first three beers. And when he asked me what I was looking for, I was like, well, light, medium, and dark. I had some examples through our research that, you know, I wasn't looking to imitate anyone, but to get an idea of what light meant and what dark meant. And I think that he did that. I had been looking for a brewer all over, and there are certain moments in the course of any kind of project or endeavor where you just need a little luck. And there were no trained brewers around to hire, there just weren't. And, you know, there were no breweries. There was actually a homebrew club in town, and I was talking to them, but none of them were going to fit the bill. And, John had, interestingly enough, been working on developing his own brewery to go into Bend with a partner. I didn't know anything about that. I had found out about some others who were contemplating similar projects, but I didn't know about John. Well, his partnership fell apart. And when I advertised in The Oregonian, which is the newspaper in Portland, he saw the ad (laughs) and realized, hey, that's my job, being a brewer in Bend. And he had worked in a small brewery, one of the original McMiniman's breweries in Portland, which to have any commercial experience at all in brewing was really something. He had been a home brewer for a long time. He understood the quality that we were trying to deliver. The luck was that John and I met And he really was the one that taught me about beer and what good beer was versus the other stuff. Without that, the whole thing could have gone the wrong way, pretty much right out of the chute. And we had our challenges. There's no question about it. There was the infection. Yeah. John doesn't like it when I tell that story. But <laughs> Yeah. I mean, we had an infection, but we made a commitment that we were never going to sell a beer that we weren't proud of. And we dumped 10 straight batches of beer down the drain, which ignoring the cost and what that meant to a fledgling, struggling new business We almost were completely out of beer. I think we were down to one or two tap handles. And, you know, I'm thinking about, well, do I need to get some Sierra Nevada and put it on tap? I mean, what... This wasn't one of the one of the problems that I thought about solving when I was writing the business plan. Yeah. And that was a real challenge. But John knew some other brewers around, and he had one of his connections come and basically consult with us for a couple of weeks. And we essentially tore the whole brewing system apart and rebuilt it and found enough evidence. And eventually, the infection went away. You know, that's one of the things about brewing that any brewer will tell you is that this is the threat that's always there and doesn't matter your sanitation practices, it's always a threat that lingers out there. And at that time, that was before Christmas, the first year, and I had gone up and convinced Mount Bachelor, the local ski area, to put us on tap, and we didn't have any beer to send them. Fortunately, winter was late in coming that year. We had been coming out of a drought, so that bought us an extra month or two before we really had to figure out whether or not we can send them beer. So we got lucky there. But yeah, John taught me a lot about beer in those days.
0: You've said in multiple interviews, including now this one, that you really first came at this from the point of view of someone who was a restaurateur, someone who had a long history, even at that point at 31, of working in restaurants. And it seems like you saw... The Brew Pub as a restaurant with a brewery, not a brewery that happened to also sell food. So when did the inflection point happen? It might have started as a restaurant that had its own brewery on site. Now we're a brewery that is also just happening to sell food. When did you have that realization that it had become something bigger and something different than you had originally conceived it as?
1: There were several stages to that, to answer your question. One of them was when we got the call from the wholesaler, Jim Kennedy in Portland, who wanted to sell some draft beer. And we said, okay, we'd love to send you some kegs. We have the beer. We need the money. Do you know where we can get some kegs? Because we didn't have any. We sold out of big serving tanks. And we scrounged up some beat-up old, dented, used kegs, and we still didn't really understand that we were in the manufacturing business. You know, that first pallet of beer went off on that load of recycled cardboard, and then the next order came in. It was two pallets, and then four, and then eight, and then 16. All of a sudden, all our cash flow problems went away. I actually went into the bank and paid off our loan. Wow banker looked at me like I had three heads. (laughs) Like, what are you doing? Yeah, I thought this is what you wanted me to do, (laughs) you know, pay you back. And I, for about six months there, I never had to furnish anything to a bank. I was the happiest six months of my life, but it didn't last. And then when we got the notice from the city about loading semis in the downtown commercial business district, we realized that this was a much bigger business than what the original business plan had anticipated and we needed to really rethink the whole thing. Sometimes it's better when you don't know what you don't know. We kept going, but like I said, I mean, it was not a light switch that went on. This was really a more gradual realization that the original business plan was not going to accommodate everything this business had become.
0: And I'm glad we laid the groundwork here for the history of Deschutes Brewery, your own story as it relates to the founding of the brewery. But I really wanted to use this as a way to kind of lay the path for my experience with the Deschutes and Bend and how the two intersect with one another in terms of community and belonging. There was this quote you had from a documentary where you said, quote, I don't know That I've influenced or we've influenced Bend as much as Bend has influenced us, end quote. This word that I'm about to say has become almost meaningless due to the way that it's been kind of co-opted by various marketing campaigns. But what does the word community as it relates to the brewing business mean to you and as it relates to Deschutes? You know, just stripped down, separated from the easy sloganeering. What does community look like to
1: you? To me, it's not that hard to answer. And our original business plan actually did anticipate a lot of what was to come that way because we were looking to, without really knowing the details, to create a more European tavern model. Call it the British pub. Call it what you like. We really wanted to create a community gathering place. And we really wanted the community to take a form of ownership in our business. We were the first brewery. There had never been a brewery in Bend before. We wanted Bend to really embrace us and this community gathering place we were creating. And we believed that in order for us to be successful, that was a fundamental part of our business plan. We knew that we would need to get involved in the community. We would donate beer to certain events, but then I started getting involved with community projects. It's kind of weird. I, I've ended up running just about every organization I've become. <laughs> I, I got involved with, but, you know, I was president of the Bend Downtowners. I was board chair of the Chamber of Commerce, the Rotary Club, on and on and on. I saw that as my job and my primary function as being the face and the personality of that community gathering place. And we wanted to invite people in, and that's what I did. It really maintained that comfortable place to be. And I mean, when I was first talking to our architect who was doing the design on the building, one of the things I told him was that I wanted it to be a place that I would feel comfortable in because I knew I was going to be spending a lot of time there. So I wanted it to be a place that I liked spending time. in. And that was just the overriding theme to everything we were doing at the time. And it really continues today to be that theme. I want to be able to come in. I still walk in the door and I see the group of regulars, of our locals. People come back, you know, the annual family ski vacation. I've got kids. I've got parents. I've got blue collar, white collar, and they're all together. The best part about it is they're talking. They may be liberal, conservative, whatever part of the community they come from, but they're all there and they're all talking and enjoying each other and laughing and arguing and the whole thing.
0: Gary, you are touching on exactly why I wanted to speak with you today. There are these two researchers who I've spent a good amount of time reading because of my concerns around like disintegration in American social life. The two researchers and writers are Robert Putnam, who wrote a book called Bowling Alone, The Collapse and Revival of American Community, which came out in 2000, and Ray Oldenburg, who wrote a book called The Great Good Place, which was published in 1991, which you might very well be familiar with. But for our listeners, Bowling Alone uses the decline of bowling leagues in America as a proxy for the broader disintegration of American social and community life that he tracks over the latter half of the 20th century. He uses this wide range of data to demonstrate that social capital and civic engagement, including bowling leagues, but also PTA memberships, church attendance, and just socializing with neighbors have declined precipitously. Since 1950. And I imagine, you know, you're at the age, Gary, where you might have been able to witness this decline yourself or heard from your parents about the differences between American life socially in the 1930s and 40s and 50s and your own experiences in the 60s and 70s. But why I think Robert Putnam's book, Bowling Alone, is so intrinsically linked to Oldenburg's book about third places is that And let me back up a little bit here because the audience might not understand what a third place is. I learned about it when I was a barista at Starbucks.
1: Howard Schultz's famous subjective. Exactly. Yeah. So for our
0: listeners, the first place is the home. It's where you live. The second place is your work, where you go to earn your money. And the third place is a place that is not your home, not work, but a place that you willingly go to socialize specifically with people you're usually not related to. And this can be cafes, clubs, public libraries, parks, and I think importantly to this conversation, breweries. You just spoke so eloquently on this, but I just want to share my own experience and what made me realize I needed to speak to a brewery owner, specifically one who is so community focused like yourself, Gary. I just feel like social media and the internet has really accelerated this disintegration. And I think it's too big a problem for any one person to solve. I'm not sure if it's even solvable. But my own story is a few years ago, I was at a brewery here in Los Angeles. It's called the Frogtown Brewery. And I was with my dog, Charlie, since most breweries are dog friendly. And there were children running around as most breweries are child friendly. There were games being played since most breweries have board games or cornhole or darts. And there was live music and a food truck. I can see it in my mind clear as day. I'd been there every week, but for some reason, that particular day just stood out to me seeing all these strangers interacting and laughing together. And it just sort of hit me. The brewery, in my opinion, perhaps more than any other location outside of a church, but I think it might be the focal point for Americans of different backgrounds and interests to come together without some agenda or higher purpose like a Rotary Club or a city council meeting or a fundraiser and interact with one another and form bonds of community. And I know you've spoke on this just now, but this is the meat of the conversation for me. The history of Deschutes Brewery is important. I'm a huge fan of your beer. I literally have some in my fridge right now. But I would love to just explore what your thoughts are on the brewery's role and specifically Deschutes' role in facilitating bonds of commonality between fellow Americans.
1: One book I read in the early days was Howard Schultz's book. And he described that so eloquently, much more eloquently than we did. We had a concept that we were pursuing, and it was described, as I mentioned earlier, we wanted the community to take ownership in our business, not physical financial ownership, but emotional ownership of this third place. And I knew that in order to do that, I had to get involved in the community and go out and meet them where they were and be that part of it. It started very early by just raising your hand and saying yes. And I've always had the philosophy that I don't mind taking my turn. And it really bore a lot of fruit for us over the years. We weren't doing it out of financial interest as much as the fact that this was our town. This was our community. The Brewers Association is our tribe. We all have to take our place from time to time, so that we make sure that these associations, that these efforts continue. It's funny, you know, you talk about bowling. I I know so many people, nobody bowls anymore, but every time they do, we'll have an employee event and we'll go out to a local bowling alley and everybody has so much fun. But there is something that's keeping us from going there in a more regular fashion. And that's for them to figure out. But it seems like all of the structure for an appropriate brand is there. Brooklyn Bowl in Brooklyn, New York. Now there's a big one in Las Vegas and they're all over the way. I mean, it's a wonderful thing, but it's a more modern take on the bowling alley and it's got good barbecue. It's got live music. It's got neon lights and all kinds of stuff. And it's jam-packed all the time. So maybe there's still hope for bowling yet. (laughs) If you want change, step into the breach. Somebody's got to make it and we can't sit there and wait for someone else to do it. We have to do it. And I've described Ben many times as the most community-involved community I've ever seen. And particularly in those early days when Bend was smaller and everybody knew everyone else, it was really easy to get involved. And if you didn't get involved, there was somebody reaching out to you to get you involved. So Bend was a special place from that perspective. It wasn't all my initiative. Sometimes others just made sure you got involved. You
0: know, there was a conversation that you had with Beer Advocate They asked you what your most memorable beer drinking sessions were, and you said, out of all the places you've been on earth and all the people you've met, the ones that stood out to you the most, you said, quote, are with family and friends. It is always the people there who make it special, end quote. And I think that gets to the core of it, right? Whether you're going to a bowling alley or a brewery or a wine vineyard, wherever you might be going, church. Obviously, the quality of the beer we're drinking is important. I don't want to take anything away from that. I'd rather be drinking a Black Butte Porter or Pond ale than some of the other stuff that passes for beer these days. But in many cases, the beer, like the bowling alley, it's just the vehicle that gets you where you need to go. It's the thing that gets you to the more important thing, which is spending time with people you care about or letting your guard down around strangers or finding common ground and shared interests with people you just met that's the important thing. And to your point, Gary, Bend was so much different when you moved there. It was what, 22, 23,000 people? Less than that, 12 to 15? You know, it's over 100,000 now. But even when I visited again last month, we did the Bend Ale Trail, which I have to imagine you were involved in creating. It's just such a wonderful idea. To people who've never been, you get this passport, and it literally does look like a passport. And then inside, it has maps of different areas of Bend with the breweries laid out. And you can go to these breweries, you get a beer at a brewery, you ask for a stamp, they'll stamp your passport. And if you collect enough stamps, you can go back to the visitor center, and they give you commemorative glasses for free. Just for going to these breweries and getting stamps in the passport, that is something that doesn't come about just out of thin air. That is a community project, and it's just one of many that Ben does. But it's a community project that requires effort from a bunch of different businesses and individuals and civic advocates. But it just goes to show that if you get people involved and people care, you can accomplish really wonderful things.
1: Absolutely. And craft beer is an interesting phenomenon and there have been times when we read a few too many of our own press clippings and we want to say it's all about the beer you know in the early days it was we make what we like to drink or we drink our share and sell the rest kitschy little slogans that lead you to believe it's all about the beer it's not about the beer it's never been about the beer it's been about the people It's the people who make the beer. It's the people who drink the beer. It's the people who provide all the other support functions. And really, it's that image of the tavern. We've worked hard to change from a dark, dingy, windowless place where old men are hunched over their drinks to a place that's bright and lively and fun and has, you know, where the parents can sit and talk like adults and have a beer and the kids can sit with them and make a mess and have a great time by themselves with food that was made just for them. It's great when that din grows and everything is really humming. And I think that's what we should be doing all the time. And when we sell beer beyond our walls, we sell it to other businesses that are trying, even if they don't know it, to do the same thing. Whether it's a grocery store and attract those customers or a restaurant, this is what we're supposed to be doing. This is the third place that Howard Schultz described from his trip to Italy originally. And it should be. We're not isolated and we shouldn't try to be.
0: I don't know if this is specific to microbreweries, but it feels specific to it, especially back in the 80s and 90s when microbreweries were more of a rare thing. I imagine there was a lot of having to kind of bond together and work together to lift all the ships in the same tide, if that makes sense.
1: You know, we're a niche business in a niche industry, and it was even more so 20 or 30 years ago. And that the only way we believed for us to grow the business was to grow the industry and to create efforts that helped educate that consumer that I mentioned earlier. In order for us to do that, we had to band together and we could be as competitive as we wanted to be out on the street. But there were those times when we were all together trying to figure out what's the best way for the industry to move forward it was fun it was entrepreneurial it was exciting frustrating all of that but it was something that we knew that we wouldn't still be around in a few years if we didn't figure out ways to get the beer to the consumer in a way that the consumer wanted it to be and just saying it was good saying it was new wasn't going to get it done we needed to have other ways to demonstrate that for that consumer over and over and over again. I mean, it was kind of the same way we built Black Butte Porter, you know, that original customer, whether it was a beer festival or wherever it was, they'd come and ask, give me your lightest beer. And I said, okay, here, but try this one first. And I give them a little sample of Black Butte Porter and they say, oh, I don't like dark beer. I know, I know. I'm getting your beer. Just taste it. It's free we figured back then we were about 80% conversion rate. When they tasted Black Butte Porter, they'd say, I'll have one of these. And surprisingly, because we all have our stereotypes we have to live with, women had the highest conversion rate of all. Women love Black Butte Porter. But for most people to say they don't like dark beer, well, when was the last time you had a dark beer? Uh, It's been a while. Well, maybe it's time to you know, try it again because this isn't like the other dark beer that you profess not to like. There were a lot of those efforts that went on trying to get it in front of people that could then begin to change purchasing habits and the system would actually change as well. And beer has an interesting system that wasn't. Ready for change, the three tier system where we sell to a wholesaler who sells to a retailer who sells to a consumer. That system wasn't always conducive to new or innovative. I will
0: say to our listeners out there if you have never had Deschutes, and specifically if you have never had the Black Butte Porter, go to the Deschutes Brewery website. They have a beer finder. It's great. You can filter by the exact beer you're looking for and your zip code. So just pull up Black Porter. Type in your zip code, drive to your nearest vendor, pick some up. You won't regret it. Just like Gary said, 80% conversion rate. By the way, I love the idea of, of the folks at your brewery who are listening to folks ordering one of the lighter beers and saying, oh, I don't think I want to try this. Kind of slow walking over to the tap because they know that they probably shouldn't pour the beer they wanted until they try the Blackview Porter.
1: Everybody likes the path of least resistance, right? It was easier to sell Mirror Pond than to sell Blackview Porter at times. But we actually refused to sell Mirror Pond in the earlier days when it was the easiest sell, the path of least resistance, because we wanted to sell Black Butte Porter instead. So when we first sent kegs to Portland, it was Black Butte Porter. And fortunately, it was a conversation I had with our distributor. I mentioned him earlier, Jim Kennedy, true bohemian, brilliant guy. And he sat me down and he said, okay, let's talk about what you want to sell. And What do you mean? He said, well, you can look at the world like this. There's this large pie and it's cut up into a whole bunch of small pieces. It's all the light colored beers. And he said, and you can sell, you'll sell plenty of Mirror Pond and you'll get your small slice of that pie. He said, but there's that other pie over here and it's much smaller. And this is the dark beer pie. He said, I think with this product, you can have the whole thing. And I thought about that and it kind of struck at the contrarian in me. (laughs) And I really liked the idea of going for that whole smaller pie and being the one that made us different. At the time, you know, everybody was drinking Bud Miller Coors, the same versions of the same theme. And I knew that we weren't going to ever be able to make Bud Light the same way that Anheuser-Busch could. I mean, and competing for that customer just didn't make any sense to me at all. We wanted to have products that were as far away from that as possible so that you could draw that distinction and understand that there was something different out there. And that was really a business philosophy we carried for many, many years until the consumer now is much more accepting. And in fact, there are a whole bunch of breweries making a living selling light lagers that are craft breweries. So, it was simply our way of saying, hey, we're different. We look different, we taste different, and you cannot compare us to those other products when we have that distinct differentiation. Yeah, I love the
0: boldness of that stance. You know, the idea that The fashionable thing to do is wear a blue shirt, maybe wear a slightly different shade of blue so you blend in with all the other blue shirted people, but you instead decide I'm going to wear the red shirt. You know, everyone might not like the shirt I'm wearing, but at least people are going to remember me at the party. So final question, Gary, and I've really enjoyed the time you've spent with us today. Decades into the future, when you're being remembered, what would you hope that you'd be remembered as along with, of course, running Deschutes Brewery? What would you hope your legacy to be?
1: That's an interesting question. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about legacy. I mean, I've had the extreme good fortune to be involved with a business full of people that I truly care about and things that I enjoy. Like I said, I was happy in so many ways to have been able to take my turn through a lot of the things that we have done with the industry, with our community here. With the people I have met and the places I've been, and my oldest daughter is now involved with the business. I'm proud as can be that she has decided to do that. I don't know where that goes. There's nothing preordained about it. So I'm happy to still be involved in what little way that I am. And I think the last chapter is far from written.
0: I'm so glad we got a chance to speak, Gary, because Deschutes represents for me more than just beer. You know, I've watched probably a dozen interviews now, whether it's of you or employees of Deschutes Brewery. And when I've been on tours at the Deschutes Brewery in Bend, whether for my friend's bachelor party or recently with my fiance, the warmth of the employees is so palpable. You know, the passion, not just for sharing their love of beer and the process of making it, but their love of working at Deschutes. I'm a freelancer, I've worked at dozens of different companies over the course of my life and I can tell within seconds whether someone working in a company actually likes being there. And every single employee at Deschutes that I've ever interacted with, I can tell that it's not just that they like the paycheck, but they like the mission of Deschutes Brewery. It comes through when I'm talking with you. And so I just wanna say thank you, not just for the delicious beer, but also for the involvement you've had with the community of Bend and especially for your time with us today.
1: Thank you, Michael. It is my immense pleasure.
0: Hey there. If you're hearing this, you're exactly the person this message is for. If you're a fan of the show, it would make my day if you could give it a five-star rating and write a brief one or two-sentence review on
1: Apple Podcasts.